Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. The recent surge of deconversion stories, as they're called, have gained national, even international, spotlight after one high-profile Christian leader, musician, author, influencer, takes to social media or some other method of communication to broadcast that they no longer hold to the Christian faith. Some of these stories involve truly vexed people agonizing their way to the conclusion that they no longer find Christianity tenable. Others are overjoyed to finally be free of the shackles and the restrictions that their previously held doctrine confined them to. Others just apathetically state that they simply just don't care anymore. And still others recount truly terrible circumstances where so-called Christian leaders used and abused them in the megaplex of high-dollar American Christianity. And their understandable disgust, they decide to throw it all away. Like one train wreck after another, it's hard for us not to peer at the wreckage, to look, to, to listen, to investigate. And in some cases, there are some lessons to be learned and certain sins to be repented of by those who contributed to such a meltdown of belief through their ongoing or th their wrongdoing. But in the end, there does seem to be a common thread underlying each of these terrible tales. The core orthodox beliefs of Christianity laid down in the inscripturated word were just no longer working for them. What God spoke through inspiration, through the prophets and the apostles, simply just doesn't hold water in their minds. So a departure is made to go to other guidebooks to lead them through life. And in each circumstance, the Word of God is exchanged for the counsel of man. These stories are tragic. They ought to break our hearts. They ought to sober us. But most of all, they ought to reinvigorate within the people of God a relentless trust in the preserving power of the Scriptures to bring us, as we've just sung, all the way home. This is the very heart of the text that we are going to dive into this morning in Hebrews chapter 4. But before we take a single step further, let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Father, we ask that you would glorify yourself in Christ through the power of the Spirit and that you would shed abroad your glory in our midst. Father, we ask that the Word would be unfettered as it works its way into our hearts and souls. Father, we pray that our corporate opinion about the Holy Scriptures would deepen and expand. We ask that the faint-hearted here among us today would be gently encouraged. We pray the proud would be humbled. 
We pray the stubborn would be rebuked. We pray the confused would receive clear-minded understanding. We pray the skeptical would receive certainty. And in all these things, we know we stand in You. And we aim to honor You. For from You and to You and through You are all things. To You alone be glory and honor. Amen. As we situate ourselves back into the the book of Hebrews here, over the past several weeks, we've sufficiently taken the plunge into this dense but glorious book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has a primary concern, to so impress upon the souls of Christians the glory of Jesus' supreme lordship over all things, that the very thought of falling away from him would so rattle us to our very core that the thought would be horrific to leave Jesus. In chapters 1 and 2, and in fact in the first four verses of chapter 1, we behold the glory of Jesus, the glory of God in Jesus as the Son is depicted as the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. He is the radiance of God's glory, the text reads. The exact imprint of God's nature. The upholder of the universe and the messianic king who is seated in power at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is our Christ. And because of this, he is far superior to angels. Indeed, it makes no sense that we would worship them when they were created to worship him. We ought not exalt angels above the risen Christ. The author expounds at the beginning of chapter 3 on why Christ is superior to Moses since Jesus is faithful as a son and is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And being the masterful sermonic letter that Hebrews is, the author toggles back and forth between doctrine and application, applying that by means of warning. He delivers the truth then lovingly. He warns believers with the dangers of abandoning that truth. So the author warns these Hebrew Christians not to abandon Jesus. And how might they do that? What would that look like to abandon him? Well, it happens by hardening our hearts and stopping our ears. The Israelites in the wilderness are prime examples of failing to enter God's rest, even though they had experienced the miraculous salvation of the Lord by watching the waters miraculously part and by with a million others pass through the waters of salvation to freedom. And yet, they began to cultivate a rebellious, unbelieving heart which led them to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4 begins, Therefore, follow along here in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the word or the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
So unbelieving Israel failed to enter God's rest because they did not have faith that God's word of good news here, as the author puts it, they did not have faith that that word of good news was any benefit for them. Instead, they hardened their hearts in unbelief and they incurred the wrath of God. Our short text this morning provides the concluding thought to this context. So hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of of him to whom we must give account. While Christians are not marching toward a literal Canaan, there is still a rest, an eternal Sabbath rest with God at the conclusion of life's journey. That we are called to strive for with a heart of faith, trust, and obedience that Israel failed to exhibit. So how is this done? How is this done? Well, by finding one's place beneath the life-giving, all-powerful, all-knowing, soul-searching, authoritative Word of God. So the goal, enter God's eternal rest. The means of getting there, enduring trust in the persevering and the preserving power of the Word. I'll say that again. The goal, enter, saints. There is still a rest, as we heard in last week's sermon. There is still a rest for us as new covenant followers of Christ, that we must strive to enter. And the means is an enduring trust in the preserving and persevering power of the Word. So arriving at, or we considered verse 11 as we just read, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So here the author uses verse 11 as somewhat of a bookend to what has come before, but also as a springboard to what's coming next. So the author calls believers to strive, to make earnest effort, to give yourself in a worthy endeavor wholeheartedly, to exert great zeal in faith and trust toward entering God's rest. For without this, the fatal flaw of the Israelites may be ours as well. Unbelief hard-heartedness, disobedience, and ears that do not hear and trust and obey the Word of God. So arriving at verse 12, and with the entire context of Hebrews up to this point in view, our main idea comes into focus this morning. And this is what I want us to leave with more than anything else. And that is, if Jesus is supreme over all, the primary argument of Hebrews, if He is this, then we must actively trust His Word 
to bring us safely home. If Jesus is supreme over all, then you and I must actively trust His Word to bring us safely home, to enter God's rest. We might anticipate, though, the question, why? Why must we trust this Word? What is it about the Word that's going to get it done for us? Life is pretty hard last time I checked. This journey that we just sung about, song, it's difficult. It is filled with trials and tribulations. What confidence do we have that, that it will work? What is it about the Word that we must trust? Well, very simply, and I do mean very simply, it is because of what the Word is, the beginning of verse 12, and what the Word does. Let's begin by considering what the Word is. And I'll begin with just a preliminary explanation that I think is, is helpful, but it's worth noting that while Jesus is referred to in the Scriptures by the Apostle John in particular, and as possible in, in his epistle and revelation as the Word of God, that does not appear to be the precise meaning of Word of God in this context. As Simon Kistemacher notes, he says, the phrase Word of God appears some 39 times in the New Testament, and the phrase is almost exclusively a designation for the written or spoken Word of God, rather than a reference to the Son of God. So while the context is certainly the supremacy of God's Son over all things, here the author of Hebrews wants New Covenant believers to hear God's voice in the inscripturated Word to believe it, and to obey. So what is this word that must be actively trusted in order to lead us home to God's eternal rest? Well, first of all, we see that the word of God is living. It is living. Ever since the creation of the world, God's speech has brought about life. It does so because God's words, unlike man's words, carry with them the life-giving, ex nihilo, out-of-nothing, authoritative power of God Himself. Whether to create or to condemn, the Word of God is alive and life-giving. Continually throughout the Old Testament, God uses His Word to give life to His people. At Mount Sinai, He gives Israel His law on tablets of stone, offering them his ten words to shape and to guide them into rest in the promised land. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet prophesies over the valley of dry bones and witnesses life begin to enter these rattling bones which come to life, creating a vast army of living beings, all on account of the power of the preached word over them. King David writes in Psalm 29, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars and shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory! We see in the New Testament the eternal Word takes on flesh and perfectly delivers God's life-giving truth 
as Jesus embodies our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Later, it is the word that establishes Christ's church and serves as its northern star, forming, shaping, governing, ruling all that it does. And here in Hebrews, it is the living word that will bring us all the way home. The phrase describing what the word is continues in verse 12. The word of God is both living and active. Active. The idea here is that God's speech is on the move. It accomplishes things. It gets things done. Precisely the goals it sets out to accomplish. It is effective. Its aliveness means it takes action and does not return void, as Isaiah 55 describes. It never has a day off. It never goes on a failed mission. It delivers because it carries with it the sovereign authority of God himself. Because this is true, the Bible cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be shrugged at or solicited as an optional source book for self-improvement or something of that kind. It also cannot be regarded as a mere collection of religious writings from an ancient people. It demands a response. It demands our attention. It demands we hear it and obey it. And it is here that we glean one of the most critical components of rightly understanding the doctrine of the Word of God. And that is, as one theologian puts it, what the Word does, God does. And vice versa. What the Word does, God does. God is what God says. God is what He says. So like God Himself, His Word is living and active. If God is to communicate with His creatures, one author writes, clearly He must communicate as the Lord. For that is who He is. He cannot abandon His Lordship while speaking to us. So his word must come to us with absolute power, authority, and presence. The word of God is the word of the Lord. There is no gap. There is no separation. There is no chasm or distance between the character of God and what he says. They are wholly and completely in union and harmony with one another. The Word of God is very simply what God speaks, and therefore what God thinks about a particular matter. If God is true and truthful in all that He does and says, so is His Word in all it contains. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche described a person seeking God as a madman. And in the story he famously tells, the laughing crowd consoles this madman, crying out, I seek God, I seek God, where is he? And this crowd consoles this individual that humanity has killed God. And churches now are mere tombs and sepulchers of his deceased presence. And in God's place, he goes on, he offers 
the ubermensch, the overman. And this would arise, evolving more and more into godlike status and ruling the earth forever. He warned of the poison of those who speak of otherworldly hopes. Let the overman rule the earth forever, he famously wrote. Nietzsche's philosophy has borne itself out in our world some 150 years later as humanity has tried to live in accord with that guidebook for life. As if we have killed God. Seeking to live their best overman life now. Viewing otherworldly hopes such as eternity with God as poisonous and looking within their own desires to find life, meaning, and hope. It is no wonder ours is a depressed, suicidal age. Because unlike God, our counsel, our words can't get it done. They can't do what God alone can do. We cannot prop ourselves up, dethrone Him, seat ourselves in an exalted place and assume things will go well for us. They will not. It is the pinnacle of self-destruction. You and I were created by a speaking God who calls us today, as Hebrews says over and again, today, if you hear His voice, come to terms with its supreme authority over us and live under its soul-preserving power. Hebrews tells us this is the only way to enter God's rest. So how do you respond to what the Word is? How do you personally respond to what the Word is? It is the living and active Word of God. If we have any hope of entering God's rest, we do not only have to trust in what God's Word is, but we must place our faith in what it does as the text continues. So we see now in the remainder of these verses what the text, what the Word does. First, it pierces the depths of the soul. Verse 12 continues to note how the word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The word is symbolically represented here as a sword, although in this context the image is different than Paul's writing in Ephesians 6 where the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is something Christians are called to, to wield with skill against the deceitful schemes of the devil. Here, it would appear a different idea is in view. In the ancient world, a double-edged sword was the sharpest weapon available. So, sharper than the sharpest weapon, God's Word appears to have its way with us. We might even say, upon us or in us, as we go under the knife, so to speak of its surgical precision upon our souls. But where and how deeply, we might ask? The text reads, it pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. And when this phrase is broken down into its individual parts, soul, spirit, joints, marrow, 
nearly all commentaries struggle to know what each reference refers to. But when taken together as a phrase, nearly all agree to its general point. And that is, as Calvin put, there is nothing so hard or strong in man, nothing so hidden that the powerful word cannot pervade it. As Gordon Fee highlights in his commentary on this text, the the author's point is not to provide an anatomy lesson or to split the personhood into individual separable parts, such as what those who believe in a trichotomist breakdown of the body would want to assert. It's not given for our meticulous analysis. Rather, the phrase should be understood as a rhetorical accumulation of terms to express the whole the whole nature of man in all its sides. The point is, the Word of God probes the inmost recesses of our spiritual being and brings the subconscious motives to light. The Word knows you. The Word knows me. We are helped to read this phrase alongside what follows as we understand what the Word does in guiding us to our eternal rest. We see it not only pierces to the depths of the soul, but it judges the very desires of the heart. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Greek word underlying the English word discerning is where we derive the word critic or critical The word operates as a judge over each of us. But unlike an earthly judge who can only critique the facts that can be observed on the outside, the word judges us to our very core, knowing us and examining us at every level of our thoughts, our motives, our desires, our intentions. So what this means is that we can fool no one. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, there is a coming day when the Lord will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart. The Lord knows our hearts and what the Lord knows, His Word knows and brings into the light. Hiding from God is as natural for us as it was for our first parents, Adam and Eve as they scrambled to play the blame game, assigning guilt to anyone but themselves for doubting God's words and for listening and obeying the serpent's counsel. Do we not believe that the Word already knows us thoroughly and completely? Who we are in the privacy of our thoughts and our desires is who we truly are. What a sobering thought. In God's common grace, others don't know all the thoughts that you and I have. Indeed, we probably would not get near one another because we would spend all of our times apologizing to one another, no doubt. And yet, nothing can be hidden from the scrutiny of the Word's examination of every part of who we are. What a thought. Our sins, brothers and sisters, and the sins of others against us 
they certainly leave a mark, don't they? You have sinned in deep ways. Others have sinned against you in hard, even memorable, hurtful ways. Those things want to, those sins want to bury themselves in us and define the course of our lives. But what a comfort to know there is a Savior that sends His authoritative Word to pierce us where we sometimes want to be left alone, but to assure us that since we are sharers in a heavenly calling, Hebrews 3.1, and since our perseverance depends on what we do with the Word, it's incumbent on us to surrender to the Word's knowledge of us and its ongoing counsel as that which is supreme to take us to God's eternal rest. Some of you may well know the story of the silver chair, C.S. Lewis's, I believe, fifth Chronicles of Narnia book. And what a beautiful image at the beginning as Jill finally recognizes there's no other stream to drink. I can only but yield to Aslan's counsel for me to live, drink from his stream. And then what immediately follows is that if she is going to obey the mission that the lion has just given her to do, it's going to require her to remember four signs. And Lewis, in a brilliant manner, just pauses there and wants us to hear the patience of Aslan as he says, no, no, keep going. You got to get this. Remember. Tell them to me again. Tell them to yourself again. Don't ever forget my words. And indeed, the whole play out of the story is Jill's ability or inability to remember and to listen and to obey Aslan's words. What a beautiful image that if we are to follow our Savior, if we are to make it to our eternal rest, it is going to be us living in and under the authority of Christ's words to us. Do we believe the Scriptures are sufficient? Well, do you believe God is sufficient? If you do, His Word is no different. What the Word does, God does. So here in a transition without any grammatical indicator of a change of subject, it is as if verse 13 now speaks of God Himself, but in the same terms previously used to describe His Word. So we continue in verse 13 to observe what the Word does. And lastly, the Word examines every person before the final judgment. The Word examines every person at the final judgment. No creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. We can convince ourselves of who we want people to believe we are. We can convince ourselves of who we want to believe we are. But on the final day, God's Word will expose who we truly are. There will be no fig leaves to pass around for hiding purposes. We are all naked and exposed before the eyes of the covenant Lord of glory. Now, how can that scene 
before the creator of the universe not engender a paralyzing fear in each of us? Well, perhaps it should. Perhaps it it must. For He is the Lord of glory, emanating a brightness and a glory like we've never known. Our hope is not that we'll dig deep and muster up courage on that final day. No, our hope ought to be singular, that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens to the exalted place next to the Father. And this verse will be considered next week. I don't want to steal any thunder. But it is difficult to leave us dangling in fear in verse 13 when we know 14 is just on the horizon. The fear of that final judgment without the certain hope of Christ's finished work. We are shot through with despair, every one of us, if He is not our great intercessor on that final day. However, I I would add, if you are outside of God's covenant family, living like the Israelites at the beginning of chapter 4, who heard God's message of good news but found no benefit in it for them personally, choosing to live by their own counsel rather than God's good and wise counsel. If this is you, I plead with you in all sincerity, you do not want to reach that final day, that final judgment having silenced God's voice in unbelief. You will give an account of your life and your only hope is to have a relationship with the one and only merciful and faithful high priest who can intercede on your behalf. Friend, hear him today so that you are not destroyed under his wrath on that final day. Perhaps you claim to be a Christian of any age, but you have lived your life actively trusting in your own wisdom. And by all accounts, your life is equally marked by sin and unbelief. Aside from what you may mutter here and there on a Sunday morning, if you would enter God's rest and escape His wrath, hear, hear and obey the living and active Word of God. How is it that we ought to respond to a text such as this? The ways are infinite. They really are. We could spend profitable hours, hour upon hour, counting the ways. But consider just a few in the time we have remaining as we respond to the Word. We must live Coram Deo. The Latin phrase Coram Deo simply means before the face of God or in the presence of God, before His presence. If Jesus has opened to us God's eternal rest through His atoning sacrifice and through His consummate high priestly intercession for us, we can take joy in knowing that in Christ we can live all of life before God's watchful gaze. It makes no sense to dread and fear the Lord's watchful gaze when in Christ we are counted as sons and daughters. Do you work in your vocation 
in such a way as if you are presently aware of the face of God. Not simply as if security cameras are on you at all time to just curb behavior, but is the covenant presence of the Lord to bring His blessing to you and with you, assure you and, and utterly change the, the way you go about your work. Is your communication with your spouse or children or friends done before the face of God? Do you live with an ongoing awareness of God's presence with you, over you? Do your online activities, which so often channel a and bring about an alter ego in some, social media use, entertainment choices, time spent down a YouTube rabbit trail that ends up consuming large amounts of time, or viewing explicit content in a secretive manner, thinking it will never be exposed. Do you engage in these things? Will you pursue all these aspects of life, quorum Deo, before the face of God? It was indeed one of the Protestant reformers' favorite phrases to use in all they wrote. What comfort to live before the omnipresence of God and His Word. Secondly, we must guard against whatever diminishes an exalted or high view of the revealed Word. We should not assume that hearing and obeying God's Word will be a piece of cake in our world. In a world that calls evil good and good evil. David Wells famously warned Christians of the allure of worldliness, which he defined as whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Satan is surely on the move in every age to challenge God's truth with half-truths, subtle misconceptions of truth, sinister intentions disguised with a veneer of love, and on and on it goes. Our strategy ought to so root ourselves in God's counsel that we instinctively more and more through the perfecting work of the Spirit in our lives would purge falsehood wherever it begins to arise within our hearts. In our psychotherapeutic world in which we live, the assumption is that every human being has a beautiful core selfhood that if allowed, free and unhindered expression will flourish into a productive citizen and a productive living and being in every sense. In this worldview, personal sin has no place. It does not exist. Indeed, it's harmful to even bring up. This theory for understanding the self provides a terrible playbook for life and consequently undermines the Word's authority to teach and examine us to our core. Another common pitfall we may hear from time to time is the frequent jargon Christians will use, God told me to do such and such. God told me to do such and such. While extremely common, and while I do believe many use this phrase as synonymous with 
the Lord seems to be leading me to do such and such, which I think is a far better way of shaping that phrase. It can be one of the most dangerous phrases we use. Because without intending to do so, we can co-opt language best reserved for God's unique inspiration as his inscripturated word is complete and unrivaled. God speaks to us personally through his word and applies that word through the powerful, illuminating work of the Spirit. So let us be abundantly cautious to not canonize what is actually just a wisdom-guided desire, impression, and then accidentally place it on par with what God has actually told us in His Word. Next, we must treasure. We must treasure the preaching of God's Word in corporate worship. Although preaching is one of the ordinary means of grace by which God sanctifies His people in every age, it takes extraordinary faith to not grow weary as it slowly forms us year after year, decade upon decade, as the Lord tarries. Do you do all you can to prioritize hearing, tracking with, eagerly listening to the Word as it is unfolded in the assembly. It's a chronic perennial challenge to not grow weary of the skill of hearing the Word of God. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, we are hearing Jesus Christ making His appeal to us through the preaching of the Word. So in a very real sense, brothers and sisters, we gather on the Lord's Day to hear Jesus as He shepherds us by means of the unfolding of His Word. What glory! Let us treasure that means of grace. And lastly, we must allow the Word to reverberate through us to one another. For the word to reverberate through us means the sound waves of truth impact us personally with open ears and open hearts, but they do not stay buried with us. Rather, we allow those sound waves of truth to travel through us and on to others such that the church echoes the harmonies of Christ-exalting truth. Do you enter the assembly on Sundays, as if it's just a you and God time. Just looking to gas up quickly and then be on my way. Do you intentionally plan to be around long enough to allow those sound waves of truth to reflect off your soul in order to benefit and minister and edify and sometimes even challenge and exhort your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Allow the sound waves of truth of God's counsel to reverberate through you and on to others. Do you warn one another of the deception of sin and the need to persevere in faith and obedience to the revealed word? Do you pray for one another in this regard? Do you encourage one another with the glories of God's eternal rest? 
helping one another not become overly enamored with the comforts and the expectations of the good life here and now? Do we underestimate the power of Christian encouragement? How have you been deeply encouraged by another brother and sister in the Lord? Does it not make sense the Lord intends for you to dispense that very same life-giving grace to others? He does. In fact, that is the linchpin of Paul's argument in Ephesians 4, that the way the church builds itself up is, is through speaking the truth, truthing to one another in love. Perhaps in the lobby, over a cup of coffee, over lunch, Perhaps through a simple email, phone call, text message, Facebook message, and anything in between. Do we underestimate just how living and active God's Word truly is to change people? Addicts, criminals, Pharisees, and everything in between. Do you recognize you are seated next to brothers and sisters who have been transformed and will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ and to think you could have a critical role in preparing them for this final day? Wow. Do we pray for new ways that the Spirit would bring to mind to minister that Word within the church to those we know the least? Perhaps even those we find the most difficult to love. Well, turning away from Christ was not a uniquely first century problem that the author of Hebrews was concerned about, but rather a perennial one that comes for us today. We ought not hear yet, an, or we ought not fear that we will be the next deconversion story. So long as our ears remain open and our hearts remain soft to receive, as James writes, the implanted word which is able to save our souls. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So since Jesus is supreme over all, brothers and sisters, let us actively trust his word to bring us safely home. Let's pray. Father, it is to this end we lift our hearts and our hands before you, asking you to unplug our ears, to break the stony ground. Help us to think differently. May our opinion of the power and the knowledge and the authority of the Word of God, the inscripturated Word, find a new level of prominence in our lives and our hearts. Father, just as you know us, the Word knows us. Help us this week in our lives to be able to dislodge those thoughts that want to displace the authority of the Word. Father, no doubt our opinion is too low of you. We think too little of you. Our impression, our idea of God is far too small. 
And if you are what you speak, it follows that our opinion is no different of the power of the word. Break the stony ground. Cause us to long for our eternal rest. And help us to anchor ourselves in fixed hope in the faithful high priest who presently intercedes for us. He alone is our hope. He alone is supreme. He alone is better than all else. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.